Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, we talk with the University of Colorado's Parker Baxter on how Denver's comprehensive school reform effort led to higher student achievement and higher graduation rates. Then, on the Research Minute, Amber brings us more good news about a third grade retention policy, this time from Indiana. All this on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. I'm sure I don't know what you're talking about, Mike. Uh, (laughs) Yes, exactly. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Parker Baxter. Parker, welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. Great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Also joining us, as always, my colleague, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. Great to have you. And let me introduce Parker. Parker is Scholar-in-Residence and Director of the Center for Education Policy Analysis at the University of Colorado Denver School of Public Affairs. And he is the author of a new study on Denver Public Schools' system-wide education reform strategy over uh, more than a decade. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But first, again, Parker, welcome and make us all feel jealous of how beautiful it is there in Colorado this time of year. It is. It is a beautiful day here in Colorado. It is the best place to live. Happy to be here today to talk about our new study. We'll dig into that study and more on Ed Reform Update. So, Parker, tell us about your new study on Denver's school reform initiative. As you know, uh, in 2007, Denver Public Schools, which at the time was Colorado's second largest school district uh, with about 70,000 students, launched what is and probably remains one of the most comprehensive efforts to restructure the delivery of public education in American history by launching a set of reforms that were oriented around a different set of operating assumptions than the traditional district. And for the next 11 years, the district implemented this strategy. And we've now just completed a study of the system-wide effects on student outcomes of that strategy between 2008 and 2019. You know, look, I think our listeners are familiar with Denver education reform, but when I was reading through your study, it's still awe-inspiring to think about all the different parts of it. Some people focus on the fact that Denver has a lot of charter schools, including uh, many charters that are authorized by the district, I guess most of which are, but also these charter-like schools that uh, were also created, but also merit pay programs, but also other efforts to try to devolve power to the local level, on and on and on. Uh, A really comprehensive reform effort under the heading of portfolio-style reform, right? The Paul Hill argument that he's made for many years that that instead of trying to have a school district manage directly and really run each of its schools, that it should serve as a portfolio manager, bring in lots of different providers, and see its role as trying to oversee the whole shebang, worry about things like equity and, and improvement, but not try to do the day-to-day management. And, and Denver went a long way towards that vision. Yeah, that's right. And when you're digging in here to do the study then, tell us just like a little tiny bit about the methodology. The study is designed to answer the question of whether Denver's reform strategy, which emphasized choice for families, empowerment for educators, and accountability for outcomes, whether that strategy led to improved student outcomes. And the results make clear that they did. 
It's important to note this is a system level study. So one point to make is that this study is is evaluating the average Denver student's performance over the 11 years. And it's rare to be able to do this with different governance types, all within a single unified system. So I do think that's one interesting thing about this study is that we're capturing both all three different types of effects that researchers often identify with these types of reforms. So the competitive effects that you might imagine from school choice, the accountability effects that that you might imagine from closing the lowest performing schools, which is a big part of the strategy, and then the direct effects of better options for students. And what we see is that overall, this this reform strategy over the course of 11 years cumulatively resulted in the average Denver student gaining an additional year to an additional year and a half of learning compared to students in both Colorado's largest districts and Colorado's lowest performing districts. So the study compares at a system level Denver's performance to to these two groups over time. And we find, again, in both English language arts and math, that students gain approximately additional grade to grade and a half of learning, and that the reforms of the total 29-point increase in Denver in the graduation rate during this period, our study shows that 14.6 percentage points of that improvement is directly due to the reforms. It's incredible. And as you write in the study, that these are huge effects and much bigger than what we see for virtually any other kind of educational intervention. Now, of course, again, this is a bunch of interventions together in one place, done though with a lot of consistency and fidelity and resources over time. Yeah, I just want to make one point on the um the strategy is we do identify really the the launch of the district strategy beginning in 2000. Seven, when then superintendent, now Senator Bennett and the school board made a pretty bold declaration that this was what they were going to do. And um, over the next 11 years, the district opened more than 65 new schools and replaced or restarted over 30 more district schools and charter schools throughout the period. So it was an annual process, which is partly what makes it um, interesting to study. And you're able to look at individual student level results here? No, we, we're using um, district and school level data in this phase. In the next phase, we will attempt to decompile the overall improvement into the various strategies. And so we've identified three main strategies that the next phase of research will explore. So that's the opening of new schools, new charter schools, new innovation schools, and then the closure or replacement or restarting of existing persistently low-performing schools. And then third, the district-managed turnaround under the school improvement grant program. So those are the three main strategies that we'll explore. But right now, we are capturing what we think, as you mentioned, all of the reforms that can fit under these three pillars of choice, empowerment, and accountability. What's on your mind, David? The big thing that that I guess is just worth emphasizing is I, I've tried to look at this too in my own small way. And, you know, no matter how you slice it, you do seem to get these pretty big effects, right? When you try to look at 
the overall effects on districts. And, you know, we could talk all day about methodology and the challenges associated with that. But I think the thing that I just want to point out is, you know, anybody who's been through many years of education reform, there's a certain level of skepticism because so many things have failed. I just think it's worth emphasizing how many different mechanisms are at work here. You're closing bad schools, potentially. You're opening new and potentially higher performing schools that are potentially more autonomous and deregulated in certain ways. You're creating a potentially powerful competitive effect on traditional public schools uh, that haven't changed their governance form. You're potentially improving the match between students and schools or programs. And to be totally honest, I mean, when we've written about this, Mike, we've, we've sort of struggled to say, well, what is what really explains the charter effect, right? And I think where my, my head's at, at least today, is, well, the reason we struggle to say that is because it's a little bit of everything, right? And, you know, that also kind of explains why you can get these dramatic effects. We're all looking for the single strategy, right? But actually, what is so powerful, potentially powerful about this when it's pursued aggressively is that there are several really important mechanisms at work at once. And it may you know, be a little bit more of this in one place and a little bit more of that in another place. But when you add them all up, it winds up mattering, right? Even if any single thing may not seem that compelling. Right. Parker, the big question then that's on my mind and probably a lot of listeners is, okay, this is great. And is it going to survive? Right. I mean, the news has been it's been all nothing but bad news in the last few years out of Denver from a reformer's perspective about an anti-reform board taking over and, uh, you know, maybe trying to dismantle all this stuff. So is is this sustainable? Yeah, I think uh, this is obviously a key question. And so for for one thing, it is remarkable that the district was able to sustain this reform strategy for 11 years. It's part of the power of this study as well, is that we are seeing this improvement year after year after year. To David's point, I do think it's also an important thing to consider how these reforms worked together. And so to now Mike's point of our question about the sustainability, it is true that the current leadership was elected based on the idea that these reforms failed. And so they have taken a very different approach and have even um, started to dismantle some of the reforms as we've written about previously. But I think a key question is whether it will be possible for opponents of these reforms to continue dismantling the reforms. And so just as an example, I think one of the, the key sort of background policies here is the fact that Colorado has had an open enrollment since 1990. And that really, I think, creates a dynamic where choice is already happening and districts, I think, recognize that the question really is more about how to manage it. And so, you know, just in a big picture way, I do think that's a, a big takeaway from this is that is just how counter to the conventional, especially current political narrative about them. Uh, this study actually provides evidence that it really is possible to improve public education at scale through choice empowerment and accountability. So I think the question really for Denver in the future is, does it really make sense to go back to the model that these reforms were explicitly intended to reinvent? If the strategy had been, for example, 100% charter schools and charter schools that were not authorized by the school board, would that be more politically sustainable? I don't know. But on the other hand, maybe it was impossible to get to that point anyway. 
and we've had debates on this show with, with Paul Hill and others. Why ask school districts to do these things that they're just not good at and they're not going to be good at for long term? You know, just let them be school districts, but then create charter schools as alternatives and do it outside of the school boards entirely. You know, one argue, well, there's facilities, there's, you know, may not have the political will to get that done uh, if this was doable in Denver for a while. But now, you know, it is at risk. I do think that it is hard to separate the duration, the longevity of the reforms from these mechanisms that were specifically designed to ensure that these changes to the district didn't just benefit one portion of the district, right? The idea was to improve the performance of the district overall, and especially for Denver's low-income minority population. And that is really one of the, the big takeaways for me is that, again, we're told so often that uh, low-income students of color are not capable of achievement. And yet here we have a district that is majority low-income, majority students of color, over 30% English language learners, a high percentage of special education students performing in the bottom fifth percentile of districts when the reforms began and improving all the way up to the 60th percentile 11 years later. That's just remarkable improvement. And I, I, I think it stands as evidence really that all children are capable of learning and that thoughtful reform can lead to improvement. All right. Well, we will leave it there, Parker. And it is encouraging. We need some encouragement, uh, especially now when we know so much of the country is struggling in the wake of the pandemic. Uh, and that much of the narrative was about, oh, things were already terrible even before the pandemic. Well, maybe some places, but not in Denver. And that's important to know. Parker Baxter, we appreciate you being with us. Thanks for having me. Again, Parker, a scholar in residence and director of the Center for Education Policy Analysis at the University of Colorado Denver School of Public Affairs. Parker, hope we can uh, have you back on the show sometime soon. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Parker. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. All right, so we, we should let people know, we'll fess up here. We are recording this at halftime of the Argentina-Croatia <laughs> World Cup game. I, I was kind of surprised that David, the, the big football fan on, on our staff, allowed us to even tape it during this time period. But it turns out it was perfectly placed. I'm sure I don't know what you're talking about, Mike. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. All right, well, who knows? We'll see where this game, you know, uh, Croatia, supposedly they have a history of coming from behind, so not over yet. We can even give away the score, right? Two nothing. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I am a big Argentina fan. I got to go there when I was 16. One of my best friends is from Argentina. His name is Leandro, which, as you may know, is also the name of my youngest son. That is not a coincidence. Really? Not a coincidence. Yes. All right. There are a lot, many Leandros down in Argentina. Not so many here in the United States. It's true. I, you know, I give my my boys these names, Nico Petrilli and Leandro Petrilli, thinking they would grow up to be soccer players. Or mafia men. I, I don't know which one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyways, I digress. Amber, what you got for us on the research front? I have a always a new study uh, by Corey Codell and a, another colleague, what, a name I did not recognize, but Corey's one of our EAPs, um, our education policy scholars, I think the very first cohort. So it's it's been a while. Um, he and the colleague are examining the effects of retention in the third grade on student outcomes in Indiana. 
we've had a lot of these third grade reading guarantee studies, but I like this one because it uses a more rigorous study design than some of the others have done. And it looks also at non-academic outcomes, not just academic outcomes. So as of 2019, uh, how many states do you think had mandatory retention laws around reading guarantees? You guys have any idea? I think it's about a dozen if I had to guess. I'm going to go 16. Hmm, 18. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Indiana, let me tell you a little bit about Indiana's policy. Uh, starting in 2011-12, students who did not score at the level of proficient or above on their state-manded test called iRead3 uh, was required to repeat the grade unless they qualified for an exemption. The exempted kids are ELL learners. Students with disabilities, and this one was a head scratcher, students who had previously been retained twice. It's like, okay, wow. we're not going to retain you anymore. Uh, all third graders get two chances to pass the exam, first in March, and the second is over the summer, and they use the summer one uh, in this study since that's the decisive test. Uh, students who don't pass that first one, they get intensive remediation prior to that second summer exam. All right, analysts study four-year cohorts of students in the third grade from 2011-12 through 14-15. They follow all students through 16-17, which is up to five years after that initial retention event or potential event. Uh, they compare these marginally retained and promoted students when they're in the same grade, which is fourth grade. And the last grade in which they compare the same grade outcomes is the seventh grade. And that's for that initial 2011-12 cohort or that basically five years after the retention event. Probably picked up on it. They're using a regression discontinuity design, uh, which allows them to isolate the causal impacts of retention on these marginally retained students. Again, this is they're looking at right above and below this cutoff uh, that Indiana's put in place to identify these kids for, um, for retaining. Uh, they analyze the retention's impact, again, on student achievement, attendance, and disciplinary outcomes. Those are the new uh, outcomes they have in school, out of school suspension, and expulsions. On the descriptive side, if you're curious, I was, 1.8% of students were retained during the study period, which equates to about 7,000 kids after those various exemptions I just told you about. Key finding. Indiana's retention policy has large, positive, short, and medium-term effects on same-grade student achievement in math and ELA. Mm. They're largest in the years closest to the retention event. That's not surprising. But they also remain um, significant for the full five years over which students are observed. So specifically, in both ELA and math, retained students score over 0.50 standard deviations higher on the fourth grade I-STEP test than their marginally promoted peers. They kept trying, which was useful. They keep comparing their results to other studies, and that effect was similar to prior studies in Florida and Chicago. And then as the students progress through school, these effects of retention start to diminish, but still even by seventh grade, uh, marginally retained students in Indiana significantly outperform those marginally promoted students in ELA. I looked it up in the appendix. It was 0.20 standard deviation in ELA by the seventh grade. Uh, in math, their seventh grade results are noisier. They're a little imprecise, so they don't put a lot of stock uh, in those math results. Uh, no impacts for the disciplinary or attendance outcomes. 
and also no big differences by gender, race, or free and reduced lunch status. But they also say that their models are a little underpowered to pick up modest change in those other outcomes. So bottom line, impacts of grade retention on student achievement is more positive when it occurs in the early grades. That's kind of the, um, you know, the takeaway after they look at all these other studies. Most of the negative impacts of grade retention occur in the sixth grade or higher, and there are rarely effects on attendance and discipline again if retention occurs early on. That's what I've got. It is so important, Amber, and it, it drives me crazy that there's some conventional wisdom out there. Somehow people think that grade retention is a bad thing or that, you know, it always harms kids based on, I don't know, old research, or maybe people are thinking about how it is for older kids, for the middle school and high school kids. But these third grade reading guarantees, like you say, we've got good evidence from Florida. You said Chicago, now Indiana. And yet Ohio is talking about getting rid of its third grade guarantee. I saw an article the other day in Michigan talking about how uh, the guarantee is racist because more African-American kids are getting flagged for retention. I mean, this is like special education, right? If kids need more time, we want them to get more time. It's good for them. If kids need special ed services, we want them to get special ed services. That can be good for them, right? The achievement gap being what it is, we're, we're going to see some racial disparities. But anyway, I digress. This is more important news for policymakers and practitioners. Uh, this is something we should do. Oh, oh, by the way, we just had a pandemic. All these kids are behind, especially in third grade reading, right? Because they did kindergarten, quote, remotely. Maybe we should be retaining more of these kids, not less. Well, I mean, and what you said was important, right? Because the thing that they did here was give them some really high dosage intervention, right? Once they failed that first test before they took the summer schools, it wasn't like, well, you know, they did some light thing that where, you know, you just get to try again. Um, they actually got some some services that, that they clearly needed. Right. The, the point is not just to repeat the grade and have the exact same experience, uh, but it is to say that some kids might need more time. I mean, you know, I've, I've put forward this crazy notion uh, when the pandemic first started that we might need to do this for lots of kids, even in some schools, all kids. Add another grade to elementary school. It's insane that we have, as a, as a regular course of action, there are districts all over the country where most kids go from elementary school to middle school and are not nearly on grade level, right? And it seems like something we could change. We could add more time into the elementary school for almost everybody so that when they get to middle school, they're ready to go and, and they don't, you know, we're not constantly playing catch up. Right. And and the stigma, right? That that's what it is too, right, Mike? The stigma of, of the uh, whole thing. Yeah. The stigma. Take the stigma yeah. away. Especially now. It was a pandemic. It was nobody's fault. You know, kids were out of school for over a year. Give them their time back. David, you're strangely quiet, which is possibly <laughs> because the, the second half has started. But t- tell us more. Well, no, no, I'm just polite. Uh, <laughs> I think I agree. I, I, I have been gradually pulled in this direction by more recent, seemingly more rigorous research. The part about it that makes a lot of sense to me is the notion that it is better to do this earlier than later if you're going to do it, right? The kids are probably less aware of what's going on. The curriculum is sort of, I don't want to say mushier, but more generalized, less specialized. It's not like you're repeating algebra two, right? When you repeat, say, second grade or third grade, right? You're working on these sort of general reading skills or, you know, numeracy, things things that are not addressed in like a particular class with a very specific curriculum in quite the same way. 
you said 1.8% of students, right? I mean, I do think there are some practical challenges here, Mike. Sorry to burst your bubble a little bit, but I do think there are some practical challenges associated with repeating everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, David, no. No, listen, if if you if you want to reach into my wallet and find some more money, I'm I encourage you to do so. But it, you know, that is something that I think has to be funded. And I don't know. I mean, I can't believe even in Indiana, right? Um, as brilliant as Indiana kids are, I can't believe that only 1.8% of kids were actually below grade level. It sounds like a fraction of the kids that were probably identified. I always have some questions about what exactly is going on there. My assumption is this is just unenforceable when the parent doesn't want to do it, right? In other words, I think it gives educators some leverage, but I think you kind of have to have the parents on board. So certainly I think we could increase the number of kids uh, who are doing this practically um, beyond 1.8%. And I, I think that would be good, particularly if it's accompanied by, as you said, a real intervention, which is not, this is not rocket science. This is just basic logic. So I support that. I suspect the benefits are underplayed here because one hope is that by having this policy in place, it, it encourages everybody in the school to do more to get kids to the point where they don't have to be retained, right? Because educators do hate this. And so they want to get their kids over that bump. And so you know, we were just comparing uh, the kids who made the cut versus those who didn't, but it's possible that everybody's achievement is higher than it otherwise would have been because there's more intense activity happening. I will say, I, I do think this is a really important question because if you take the other view and, you know, the other side of it and say, well, no, you know, the kids will get stigmatized, yada, 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 you know, there is a very serious concern there, right? Which is that there are no standards, no real standards. And that, I mean, essentially there's just, there's no stick, right? Like you oh, just yeah. you push, keep pushing the kids through and it's not clear whose fault it is exactly. And, you know, I think people who take that side of the argument have some very serious questions to answer too. I do think even if it's not sort of like a perfect solution to hold kids back, I, I think I think it's a really important policy potentially with broader ramifications for how the education system works. But it does make me wonder too how much how much power the parents have um, in terms of you know being able to say no I'm going to choose not to do that versus this quote you know state policy that's been mandated by your general assembly you know it just it does make me wonder in practice right how much of this is parent choosing to refuse or or not uh, in terms of that decision. Yeah, I usually think that there is some kind of loophole. I, I like the idea that adults will be inconvenienced if something isn't done. Let me put it that way, right? So at that level, I'm 100% in favor. If it's a wake-up call, it serves its purpose. Is that what you're saying, David? Yes. If adults, including parents, teachers, principals, you name it, if they're going to be inconvenienced by this policy, if they're going to be forced to do something, right, for some fraction of these kids to avoid things, then then I think it's a good policy because at a minimum, it shines a bright light on these kids and forces some kind of action. We've been talking about how frustrating it is that 90% of parents think their kids are already caught up from the pandemic when that's not the case at all. We, we should just have a policy. So, okay, we're, we're going to retain every child in America uh, this next school year who is still not caught up from the pandemic and send notices out to parents and teachers about that. That would get people's attention. <laughs> Patrilli for governor, man. It's it's happening. And lawyers would be the beneficiaries of that. <laughs> so that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. 
The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.